0: This evening's a talk <clears throat> is about a topic that isn't so often spoken about Samvega, the Pali word Samvega, which translates as spiritual urgency. That's the usual translation spiritual urgency. <clears throat> But actually, it's a term that is somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, it's spoken about as one being moved or stirred by a sense of urgency to practice, and one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice by what should move one and the systematic effort of one so moved. Spiritual urgency, or some vega, in itself isn't an energy that's at all fraught with any tension or any sense of frantic energy or doesn't have any obsessive quality about it. It's a state of mind, it's a quality of mind that very often comes out of some degree of understanding of the way of things, understanding the natural laws of how it is, which for some of you may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness, the round and round and round in daily life. Or for others, felt through some degree of the perception of change or impermanence, anicca. Or for others, felt through some degree of the sense of the attendant unsatisfactoriness, the unsatisfactoriness of things because of change, because of anicca, because of impermanence. Or some vega may be felt through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties subtleties of the suffering in this life. The general suffering or maybe the very specific suffering in one's own life. Or for some, some vega arises because of a long accustomed sight, or maybe a new sight, or one's own direct experience of the manifestation of bias or prejudice in relationship to race or gender or age. Each of these experiences, all of these experiences and the feelings included, attended by some vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When samvega first stirs us, it can be an emotional state that might be somewhat difficult, maybe disturbing, until it finds a clear, healthy direction to connect to. While at the same time, this stirring energy of samvega has the power in itself to move us, to connect, In that direction. And actually, continuing all along the way through our practice, Samvega is an essential energy of successful practice. From my own experience, from one perspective, I would say that, describe Samvega as the feeling of being stirred stirred and inspired, inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me that I may be directly involved with in some way or that I'm just simply the observer of with some vega in these times being an inner response to any of these various occurrences that happen outside of formal, a formal practice time. And of course, it's also the spiritual urgency that arises in direct relationship to the experiences within my practice itself. A kind of urgency or inspiration that arises out of a moment of direct mindful connection and clear comprehension or wise reflection that moves and inspires me towards a deeper and more sustained effort in my practice. That samvega that moves me, stirs me again and again and again towards letting go of, relinquishing, letting go of the painful contraction, however strong, however subtle, of clinging to anything. When some vega is present, it's sometimes experienced has an urgency, an ardency, an inspired heart-mind, a passion, we could say, for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure each of you have occasionally felt, and for some of you, an experience that you've probably felt many times. And very likely for everyone here in this room, at least part of what brought you here. As a Dhamma teacher your ardency, your sincerity in and with your practice really moves and inspires me. And I think it's quite safe to say that it's true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. We're moved, we're inspired by your sincerity, your urgency your ardency in your practice. This is really one of the wonderful aspects for all of us here right now, yogis and teachers alike, of living in a practice community such as this, even if it's just for a short while. We move and inspire each other we move and inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So, more specifically, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what, along the way of our practice, keeps urging us, moving us, towards sustaining and deepening our practice? What might move us outwardly and inwardly towards this sense of spiritual urgency? What moved you to come here to practice now? What moves you towards spiritual practice? There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just a symbolic metaphor. Considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events of life old age, sickness, death and though not so common in our time and our culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred before to such such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, leave the ease and the comfort of his life. Urgently moved to search for the truth. Inspired and moved to be liberated. Inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relation to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life and the overt suffering in life that touched him so deeply, so profoundly during those few mornings on his chariot rides through town. Isn't it really the same case for us that most of the time with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted. Reacted by maybe ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways or even by pretending or believing that something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us deeply. And then we respond. We respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point, to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness or anguish or fear or attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of Samvega. If we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that, in fact, make our vision dull, our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teaching. We may have encountered many times of powerful intellectual and emotional stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practice. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force, as probably some of you have experienced at times. The remedy is to constantly renew it by turning to the fullness of life around us and within us, which constantly illustrates the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations, illustrating the truth of what suffering is, what it really is and its cause, its origin. The clinging relationship with what can't be clung to. And the truth that there's an end to this suffering. The solution, so to say. The solution being not clinging. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path that each of us is engaged in walking at our own pace, right here, right now. As very likely some of you have experienced and know, there can be a moment of a direct vision within our own body-mind experiences of any of these truths. Or, quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up in relationship to what might be, for instance, a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear anger or grief or clinging or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed sight of some outer manifestation of poverty in this world or maybe a crying, weeping child or maybe the distress of someone that you regularly have some degree of contact with or in relation to maybe the unaccustomed connection with the illness of a loved one or one's own illness or one's own bodily discomfort or myriad other kinds of flavors of experience each having the power, so to say, to startle us, to promote a reflective response, and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to practice this path that leads to the end of suffering, the cessation of suffering. Or we might be stirred and moved by directly seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, not-self nature of things. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind more directly, more clearly, and more and more subtly. A moment of knowing the impermanent, nature of things, or possibly a moment of knowing that it's all not self, it's all anatta. Phenomena just simply arising and passing according to conditions. With these moments of seeing and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the end of suffering. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday ordinary conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia, Each of us have many, many stories, many experiences within our meditation practice and within our life as a whole. Stories that exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of samvega. vega. In fact, it's very often part of what's heard in talking with you in your practice interviews. There are a number of stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. This stirring being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the arahants, the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas devas being the beings who, whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time, sometimes very long lengths of time, in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, who aren't yet enlightened, who aren't yet free from suffering. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. And I'd like to um, share some of these encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalins in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion... The bhikkhu had gone to uh, his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while, he kept thinking unwholesome thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then, the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him. In verse. And all of these um, discourses are in verse. And this is the Deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man, the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And lust in this case, not necessarily meaning just sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for various experiences. And the Deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful, with a shake flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. This next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. His closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been strongly encouraged to attain huntship before the first uh, Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone to the Kosala country and entered a forest abode to meditate. But when the people who lived in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the the Buddha. And so Ananda constantly had to instruct them in the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva who lived there was aware that the council could only succeed if Ananda attended it as an arahant. So he came to provoke and inspire Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And this is the Sutta. On one occasion, the Venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the Deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for Venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the Deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart. Meditate, Gotama. Because Ananda was um, the Buddha's cousin, he had this same family name of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will this hullabaloo do for you? Then the Venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue to read because, of course, though we're not in the same position as Ananda was, uh, we're certainly often quite uh, caught up, quite seduced by the seeming necessity uh, for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight, straight and clear, not to neglect what needs to be attended to, of course, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. So another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling in Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Vesali. Then that bhikkhu, lamenting as he heard the clamor of instruments, gongs, the music coming from Vesali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller, subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content, many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in the heaven realms. Then the bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming, thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods. And the deva who inhabited that same woodland thicket out of compassion and wishing to stir up samvega vega in him spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, and in this uh, case, careless way meaning attending to things as permanent, as self, and as desirable because they're pleasurable. Having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully. And carefully in this case, meaning attending to the true characteristics of things and experience as impermanent, as not self, so, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. You should reflect carefully. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, the Buddha, and on Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And when you're suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. And then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. Urgency. The last verse I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who after returning from his alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced, he would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought this, she thought, Having received a meditation object from the Buddha and entered in the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. I particularly like the title of this sutra. It's called The Thief of Scent. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take. I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers. One of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the Deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him. But it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the Bhikkhu responds Surely, Spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O Spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. Urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha and those of us right here, right now, who are quite sincerely practicing, it seems that um, things haven't changed much. Our human predicament crosses time, and cultures. The teachings are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were spoken. When Samvega is kept alive, or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith, sadha in Pali, and confidence, pasada in in Pali. Each of these qualities being very essential helping us to break through what for some of you might be some sense of timidity or hesitation or fear or doubt or even complacency. And these last five states of mind always coming from our routine habitual ways of living and thinking. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers, his bhikkhus, his students, both lay and and monastic, to arouse some vega. In speaking with a group of disciples in one sutta, he says this. He says, rouse yourself, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? In this case, sleeping meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion." What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease, disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the disease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up, resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And he goes on to say, Negligence is is a taint, And so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream. Out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, Samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality, this reality of suffering, the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is really a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there, not coming from somewhere outside, some outside thing or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here, inside, in the craving, in the clinging, in the fear that's present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle and he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind noble qualities of heart moral or ethical responsibility sila mindfulness clear comprehension energy joy and happiness faith Confidence, compassion, loving-kindness, equanimity, concentration. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency, Samvega, that at one point led us to look for a solution to our predicament. So our predicament has a very practical solution. A solution that's really within the powers of every human being. And a solution that we begin to have a growing faith in. Possibly if we read and study the many, many stories, the many, many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddhist discourses, but really most importantly that we come to know out of our own direct experience through our own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency out of some vega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, develops, and deepens, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. A story that I personally have found uh, very inspiring and that evoked quite a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago and then again had a similar effect when I came across it more recently. So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into silence as he was emerging from beneath an enormous, shaggy, wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into silence, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two levers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasel's open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured unremarked and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, and even silence by choice. The thing is to stock your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you, Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. And following Annie Dillard with a poem by another contemporary author, Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean In the light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to close the talk with the Buddha's last words before his death. Words offered to his monastic and his lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them. To really exhort them to keep going along the path. This particular quote that I want to share with you is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan uh, version of the Parinibbana Sutta. O bhikkhus, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in this world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And let's sit for just a moment.